This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're going to do this podcast whether... By hook or by crook. <laughs> you like it or not. Wow. Uh, yeah, welcome to our uh, forced march, <laughs> I guess. It's like, just... it's Making you listen. Yeah. There's a lot happening. Mm-hmm. We're going to do the show. Mm-hmm. We're going to provide the show that provides entertainment to people. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's that's what we that's what we can do. That's what we can do and that's what we plan to do. So we're just going to get into it. Um yeah, what how are you what have you eaten right lately what have i eaten i'm just i mean i'm trying to lighten the mood now i feel like i got too real i want to ask you, you about got food. too real you brought it down too much and you were just trying to talk about our minority ruled dystopia we're just trying to get over here and talk about a book um i yeah i'm 36 as you might remember sometimes i forget which <laughs> Wait, what does this does this lead you to answer my question yeah okay and so i've suspected for a little while that i might have a touch of the lactose intolerance oh and i've recently started experimenting with oat milk you were about this stuff oat milk they just make oats they just soak oats in water until the water is really oaty and then they call it they add like calcium like powdered calcium to it and they call it milk yeah uh, it's not bad. Welcome to oat milk world. I've been living it's in good. this world for years. It's good on cereal. It is less satisfying to drink a Ew. tall frosty glass. No, uh-uh. <laughs> we are going to talk about a gentleman in Moscow by uh, Amor Tolls in a second. But let me tell you, no, ain't no one drinking a glass of oat milk. Well, you listen, are pouring who, it guess in who coffee. Di- guess who discovered that the hard way? It's it, it's a me. Andrew, oh man! It's, it's it. When you pour it in the glass, it's got just this touch of gray that reminds you of uh, reminds one of paper mache water mm. in a way that makes it less even less appetizing. I prefer to ingest my oat milk through coffee mm. or with a granola or cereal. I but I'm cannot. I'm enjoying the the reduced tummy tummy I troubles. Bet you are, and yeah. So thanks for asking. No problem. I didn't. Every week we talk about the kinds of milk that we're experimenting with. Never almond milk. It's environmental disaster. No. Uh, And then we also, then after that, only after that, do we talk about a book that one of us has read that we've never read before. Yeah. The other person also hasn't read it. We both discuss it together. And in doing so, hopefully have an enlightening conversation that you at home can enjoy and so and also you learn a couple of things about oat milk if you've been thinking about dabbling and you haven't dabble away 
Just don't drink Four it straight. Out of five stars <laughs> for oat milk. Uh, we're talking about a gentleman in Moscow, Amor Tolls, as I said. This was mm-hmm. recommended to us by Sean and Anthony, some of our Patreon supporters. Anthony said, uh, one book that I read recently that is probably one of my favorites that you haven't done is called A Gentleman in Moscow. I have recommended this book to many of my friends, and I always tell them that it's one of those books that's not super fast-paced page churnery, but one that is beautifully written and truly a joy to read. If you guys could fit it in your schedule, I would really appreciate it. Well, I fit it in the schedule. I did it. It's been sitting mm-hmm. there. It didn't... It Anytime I looked at it, I wasn't like gotta put that in there because it's like guy lives in a hotel it's written by a dude from a few years mm-hmm. ago nothing about the the elevator pitch for this book got me like pumped to put it on the schedule you love an elevator pitch well i just i love to have a hook the hook brings yeah. you back you know yeah like the like the movie hook yeah i'm a real blues traveler out here um mm-hmm. looking for a hook and i just I'm glad I read this book. I had a good time. Good. Well, that's the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> um, Andrew, why don't you tell me a little bit about Mr. Tolls? Amor Tolls. All right. He was born in 1964. That's a good year. Uh, he was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Graduated from Yale. Got his MA from Stanford. Wow. Um, I feel like if he had gone to the Iowa Writers Workshop, he would have gotten the white male literary EGOT because <laughs> he's just checking all these boxes. Sure. Uh, he's, he's talked about how when he was 10 years old, he put a message in a bottle and the person who found it and struck up a correspondence with him was the then managing editor of the New York Times. No. So he, was, he had pen pals in high places, I guess. <laughs> Uh, the pen big, pals <laughs> in high places. Big thing to know about him, like like most of what is out there about him, is him talking about his specific books and his like motivations and processes for writing them. So we'll talk a little bit about that because um, he gets a little autobiographical about it. Uh, but the thing to know about his life is that he worked as an investment banker for two decades before he became a writer. Yeah. Um, his first job, his first novel, which was published in 2011, called The Rules of Civility. Um, getting political, am I right? Oh my God. Um, did better than he expected it to. And so he quit his job and he decided to be a full time writer. Now, I don't want to editorialize too much. I think maybe his two decades as an investment banker might have built him a bit of a cushion. Yeah. We've talked about a lot of, of people past and present who had careers before they quit them to go be a writer and i feel like normally the jobs are a little bit more precarious like they're maybe based in education or in the arts in some way like places where there aren't a lot of of money and you would be taking a pay raise to be a successful author <laughs> and amor amor's coming at it from the other side so that, i mean that's interesting yeah it, gives, it certainly gives him an interesting a frame of of reference that we don't see all the time. And I I do think it is it I'm sure you saw it maybe in some research, but like this book is about a guy who used to be a Russian nobleman mm-hmm. who just kind of like hangs out. And he's got like stuff happens to him <laughs> and whatever, but like he's living in a fancy hotel 
mm-hmm. and you get the feeling from the book without even reading any ancillary material that Amor Tolls loves a fancy hotel and has yeah. spent time in him. And God bless him, I love a fancy hotel too, but I bet he has been in more in one year of his life than I will ever be in mine. <laughs> yeah, he says in this, and again, we've talked about this before, I don't know who the interview on his author website is supposed to be oh, with. Oh no, by him? him? answering his own questions <laughs> or what. Uh, but he writes about his inspiration for this book. Over the two decades that I was in the investment business, I traveled a good deal for my firm. Every year I would spend weeks at a time in the hotels of distant cities meeting with clients and prospects. Um, and he talks about, he's he's a little long-winded in these, so I'll, I'll summarize. He talks about one year he went back to a hotel for like a yearly conference that he was doing, and he recognized a lot of the same people from the same oh, hotel sure. the previous year. And it got him thinking, like, whoa, what if these people just lived in this hotel this whole time? I mean, he, it's, it's all good <laughs> ideas. Like, I don't want to, yeah, like, know it's a good idea. On it's their good. face. And these are, like, little things that we like. At, it's, like, it's the cheers thing. You want to go to a hotel where everybody knows your name, even if you only go there once every five years, right? I want to go to a hotel where nobody knows my name. The, the way to <laughs> get me to stop going to like a Panera Bread or a Chipotle is for people who work there to start recognizing me and like sure I just want I go to these places because I want to be cloaked in anonymity I just want to eat my mid-tier quick service food and leave and be unremarked upon what sandwiches lurk in the stomachs of men the shadow knows um and he so he that that was the the hotel bit and then so his first book rules of civility was also a sort of like semi historical new, new like stuff right yeah like new york in the 30s and he talks about uh he says my interest in writing about the early 20th century is neither a reflection of love of of a love of history nor a nostalgia for a bygone era what has attracted me to the period is that it has a proximate distance to the present it is near enough in time that seems familiar to most readers but far enough away that they have no first-hand knowledge of what actually happened this provides me with the liberty to explore the narrow border between the unbelievably actual and the convincingly imagined that's cool yeah i think we've had a version of that conversation before where like readers modern readers would have some degree of familiarity with like the the major world events yep yep and the and the world order like circa that era but either because we haven't researched the era extensively as readers or because that record just doesn't exist because people didn't used to like yep be brands and live their entire lives in public we just like don't have the information so he can make some stuff up without like that's a being totally fabulous about it which is it's an interesting i feel like i was talking about this on on the bridgerton episode that like what is the appeal of historical fiction and what are you doing when you get into that space and honestly that is a pretty good argument for someone spending their time and particularly in like for our for a reader now like 20th century historical fiction where like you learned about a bunch of it in high school, hopefully, but like, yeah, so that like if you get an allusion on one page to a historical event, you can start to fill in some blanks, but the author doesn't have to do too much work, yes, and then right. they can just build some cool characters, which is what he mm-hmm. likes to do. Um, the only thing reading this interview that like hit me the wrong way was okay. uh, he asks himself or some or his agent asks him, <laughs> I don't know, does the book have a central theme is the question. And he says, I certainly hope not. 
In crafting a novel, I do not have an essential message I am trying to communicate. Rather, I hope to create a work of art that, while being satisfyingly cohesive, contains such a richness of images, ideas, and personalities that it can prompt varied responses from reader to reader and from reading to reading. So, like, my my impression of this guy is that he is a very well-read, sort of nerdy guy who's investment banker for 20 yeah. years, and then when he decided he didn't want to do that anymore... He just made his hobby into a career, which is awesome. And people should do that when they, when they want to, but he doesn't seem like driven by any particular like belief system or like a mm, desire to say something. Okay. Here's what he's saying. Here's what I think he's saying. I read one book of his, I'm an expert. Um, I mean, you know more than I do. I (laughs) I just read the interview that he did with himself. There is so much in this book that is characters uh like talking about where different forms of art fit into their lives and how we hold them up as ideals and whether or not they actually convey those ideals or you know what are the political forces that shape what art gets to exist and i think he is very interested he was at the t- at the writing of this book very interested in a lot of those questions and so i think he is reticent to say, like, this is a book about how this is what happens. And he is instead, like, I think he's trying to put his book on the shelf alongside, or at least in dialogue with the... History? Yeah, the the works that have come before him that he's referencing. Like, there's a lot of... He's referencing... You got it in there, didn't you? He's referencing Chekhov here. He's referencing Casablanca. He's referencing um, a lot of, like, varied works of canonical art both pop and quote-unquote highbrow i suppose but just like big cultural artifacts um and i think he's not here to tell you why they're important or how specifically they're important he is trying to at least in this book like give you a bunch of characters who have feelings about those things and some of them disagree, and and they maybe they their opinions change over the course of their lives. I th- I do think this book is about something in that it is about uh, how circumstances shape people. And when you when you say it like that, every book is about that. But that is what this book is about. Okay, <laughs> it it is about like people whose uh, immediate circumstances uh, either change them or don't change them. Um, yeah. So. I think maybe it's just the phrasing of his answer that got me. It's like, what novels don't have to be about anything. It just can be, I'm just vibing I in Russia he, in my he hotel. He doesn't want it to be reduced. He wants it to be a, a, a multi-flavored stew. He doesn't want it to reduce down. Huh. Cooking metaphors. I guess, yeah. Um, I also, I did like, I went to do just some initial very quick research on him case i could find it interesting one of the first things i found was a 2016 new york times real estate article about the victorian townhouse he owns <laughs> oh boy oh boy yeah um i i mean i don't again he seems like to, a nice guy who wrote a book that a lot of people love i'm i'm just kind of clowning around here i think it's just i it's i i feel like he is adopting the i quit my day job to go be an author because i was unexpectedly successful yeah. thing but what he means is that i early retired from my cushy investment banker job because i could and now also i write books. <laughs> yeah yeah i think so 
Um, I watched a very charming interview with him on Seth Meyers' show on YouTube. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, Seth Meyers is a great place to go to be kind of blandly charming. It seems like Seth Meyers was like, I love your book. You got to come on and talk about your new book. His new book, The, the Lincoln Highway, came out last year, 2021. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there are some Easter eggs for fans of Gentlemen in Moscow. Ooh, and he, they and take like, place in the, the Amorverse. He talked about the Easter egg that he put in there in such a way that like the conversation hit a point where the studio audience was like, do we clap? I guess we clap now. <laughs> it was great. I love it. It was so pure. This like is just like, hey, wrote a book. Everybody bought it. Good job, dude. You know? Yeah, cool. Um. So yeah, I'm being I'm being too hard on it. <laughs> I think because I am because I don't know. We had the oat milk star. It's just I got a some kind of bee in my bonnet. Yeah, that's okay. Had to take it out on someone. This is a book time, about class warfare, here. Andrew. If you want to get yeah. you know, we can get into it. Mm-hmm. But um, he's a guy. He wrote some books. Mm-hmm. I was honestly surprised by how few books he had written. He only given, wrote three books. Given the response, the like really positive, glowing response, even from our listeners when we announced that we were doing this one, um, that I was like, he only this is only his second book. Yeah, every five years, guy writes a book. So we'll be back in twenty twenty six, I guess. Okay, let's take a break, and I'll tell you all about this book. Rat. Craig, if you're trapped in a hotel, you know, one thing that you're probably going to have a little trouble with is booking a doctor's appointment. You are totally right. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I bet there is one service that would work even if you were trapped in a hotel. And it's ZocDoc, one of our sponsors this week. Uh, ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient reviewed, take your insurance and are available when you need them, even if you are trapped in a hotel for three decades (laughs) in Russia. Uh, read up on local doctors, get verified patient reviews, and see what other real humans had to say about their visit. So you, when you walk into that doctor's hotel room or office, you're set up to see someone in your network who gets you. Uh, go to ZocDoc.com, choose a time slot, and whether you want to see the doctor in person or do a video visit, and just like that, you're booked. Craig, just like that. Whoa. Find the doctor that's right for you. Book an appointment that works for your schedule. Uh, I've used ZocDoc to uh, schedule eye exams and other little, you know, just like body maintenance things that you're supposed to do. Yeah, you are supposed to do those. And it makes it makes it pretty easy. And it also is like, hey, you have a general practitioner, but also you haven't been to the dentist in like two years. Maybe you should get on that, Mm. chief. Mm. And I find that useful. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, go to ZocDoc.com slash overdue and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash overdue. ZocDoc.com slash overdue. Andrew. Craig. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Oh, another, another one. Yes. Life can be a lot. You could be living all of it in a hotel. Yep, you could be trapped in a hotel, and I bet that does a lot for your mental health. It, you could be descending into a humdrum routine in an autocratic state, and you might mm-hmm. be irritable, fatigued, disoriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I mean, it would all depend on the vending machines, right? Yeah. Like, are the vending machines regularly... St- like, can somebody from the Coca-Cola company get in and out of the building without becoming trapped? And it changes very in the, over the three decades that you're living there. <laughs> yeah. And if you're stuck with those Cool Ranch Doritos that, like, you know, you're like me, they're fine. You don't love them. They're always there, though. You might get a little burned out. 
Yeah. Uh, and there are a lot of different causes for burnout and BetterHelp Online <laughs> Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. <laughs> and talking with someone can help figure out what's causing the stress, contributing to burnout. It's probably something like more important. It's probably chips. Than it's cool probably ranch you ate the Doritos. same chips too many times. <laughs> um, folks in my life uh, have used BetterHelp. I know they've found it convenient and impactful. Uh, good therapy is a great way to talk things out before they start burning you out. Uh, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours our listeners get 10 percent off their first month at betterhelp.com slash overdue that's better h-e-l-p.com slash overdue do who have a cow man a, a moscow whoa that a gentleman in moscow the book what is it like? That, that is what Bart would say if he went there. Did Bart would—that's what Bart would say—and then he would like fart, and you and hit me with a slingshot. <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting book to read. You know. All right. Well, that's the show. Given, given, I wasn't sure how I would feel going into a book set in Russia given current events. It didn't. Mm-hmm. It ultimately didn't factor in too much this book is really concerned with the like um, it's the 30 years after the bolsheviks take power like after Mm -hmm. the what is that the october revolution or something Mm -hmm. like that um you know the first chapter is set in 1922 so it is about this like guy living in a hotel adjusting to an autocratic state that is sure maybe who knows how better or worse it is than the previous regime it's it's all the previous bad. regime or the current regime like who knows what what unjustified uh, military t- attacks have been carried out yeah by by the government yeah it's all bad um mm-hmm. and i do think what is interesting about this book is that it is very charming and it is deliberately lighthearted in spots. That's that's one thing that I got from Amor is that he does seem charming in his very like wordy, tweety sort of way. Like yeah. it, it is hard not to n- not to enjoy reading what he's saying because it is interesting. It's just said in this very sort of florid fussy way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know this yeah. like nerd. This he's like an old nerd dad. <laughs> He yeah. doesn't have to think about money much, and so he can just afford to let his mind take him where it wants to. He does. He seems <laughs> innately curious. This book feels like if you are someone who it, who likes to read books because they take you somewhere else, and because you get then you get to like if you like a book that gives you ten Wikipedia holes to fall down, like this is mm-hmm. one of those. Yeah, um, and yet you also have some nice characters that you like the closest thing to a villain in this book is a bad waiter who becomes a hotel manager like okay so people can get promoted in the in the (laughs) the forever hotel yes now okay it's good that there's a career ladder that people could because you know you wouldn't you you hate 
you would hate to have a retention problem that because is... those people are just going to quit and then they're just going to hang out and just <laughs> yes. be around. Okay, I maybe should clarify how this hotel works. It is not. You maybe should. It is not a magical forever hotel. It is the actual Hotel Metropole uh, in Moscow, mm-hmm. and our main character Count Alexander Ilyich Rostov. Um, referred to mostly in this book as Count in a very close third-person narrator, um, though occasionally referred to by his friends as Rostov. Uh, he is a what is referred to in capital letters as a former person uh, after the Bolsheviks. <laughs> Same. After the, <laughs> it's been a rough couple of years. Yeah, he was a you know a nobleman from a family mm-hmm. that owned land, et cetera, et cetera. A gentleman, you might say. A gentleman, in fact. And uh, after the Bolshe- Bolsheviks take power, he was out of the country while that revolution happened. Uh, he returns, and then in 1922, he is called before some sort of committee. They ostensibly are calling into question this poem he wrote called Where Is It Now?, which is a, a poem about how the aristocracy used to have a purpose and where is it. And so, like, mm-hmm. actually, the poem was kind of critiquing the aristocracy for not, like, meeting, like, the times um, as the revolutions started in the beginning of the 20th century. Right. Like the revolutions in my experience with them don't happen for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, so like the Bolsheviks in power are like, we kind of liked this poem where you were critiquing the aristocracy a bit, but like you kind of seem like a wasteoid and <laughs> we're not going to kill you. But we and we're not going to send you to Siberia. We're just going to put you under house arrest. Which okay, this is this is much less fun than my magical realism hotel no. that I had invented in my head. <laughs> the the book has strong Wes Anderson vibes. In, mm, that's that's yes, and okay. and like that is the type of the like the Budapest hotel and just in general the kind of. I guess tweeness. I feel like I feel bad just deploying that word again and again, but like there is tweeness. a tweeness. Tweeness. Yes. Okay. Um. <laughs> uh. But yeah, there is an. There, I think the new one of the New York Times reviews also mentioned that you could imagine like an Alexander Desplat like uh, Wes Anderson score happening during the hijinks mm-hmm. in this book. Sure. Uh, um, there's hijinks. You say there are hijinks. Yeah. There's I've got my attention. Some hijinks include a goose. Uh, but this guy's place under house arrest where he was living, which happened to be this hotel in Moscow. So now he has to live there forever or he will be shot and killed. Um, so it's sort of like that movie, the terminal. <laughs> 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 I mean, I don't think they would have shot and killed Tom Hanks if he had left the airport. If he went back to Krakosia. If the if he went back to Krakosia, but he could have gone out he could have gone out into the United States probably. He does at the end of the movie, spoiler. Yeah. Um but so Rostov has to live in this hotel <sighs> now. Uh I can't believe you didn't see that one comment. I was ready for it. Uh I mean <laughs> I do think about the movie The Terminal a lot. I know you do. Um, Specifically, Tom Hanks just saying Krakosia over and over again. Yeah, it's true. So he goes back to the hotel. 
and everyone who worked there looks at him like he was supposed to have been killed, which is kind of fun for him. And yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, uh, and they move him from his like fancy suite up into like an attic room, basically. And so you get this montage of him like choosing which of his possessions he can squeeze into this tiny room. All of his possessions have a story that connects to his family. So you learn a little bit about how his parents died and the Duke that cared for him and his dear grandmother and his dear departed sister. Um, They used to live at this estate called Idle Hour. Uh, His dad had this cool clock that only went off twice a day. Very big dad energy from this clock. Like the is that the broken clock that the the proverb is about? It only goes off at noon and midnight, and this is uh-huh. the dad's reasoning for the clock. At noon, you should have gotten up early enough to do a full day's work, and noon is to tell you that you're done working. Huh. And then midnight is what are you doing up so late? You should be now. I mean, where's the lie? <laughs> um, so that's a cool clock that shows up. Uh and he like winds up like living in this hotel he makes friends with the hotel staff uh andre the the mater d vasily the concierge marina the seamstress he later becomes friends with emil the head chef at the boyarski restaurant um and he's just kind of like adjusting to the fact that he's like not a nobleman anymore like yeah he's just a a hotel ghost yeah like some of the characters were calling him your excellency because he was aristocracy and uh that's what they were supposed to do and then there's like a a hotel policy at one point that like we're not gonna call you that anymore sorry bud um by pure happenstance andrew he meets a young girl named nina who comes up to him after his fancy mustache is ruined at the barber shop, mm-hmm. and she's like, "What happened to your face?" <laughs> and uh, she's like eight or nine years old. She's in the hotel due to her like parents having to be there for some reason, and her governess won't let her leave. And so she's like this little kind of Matilda running around the hotel. Like she has a secret key that's never explained that lets her like run through all these secret passages. And they have, like, they strike up a charming friendship. It's just, you know, what else is he going to do? Because he doesn't have a job. Right. And uh, in the back of his head, he is planning for the 10th anniversary of his sister's passing, mm-hmm. where he is going to toast to her as per family tradition, and then he will probably take his own life. Spoiler, he does not, because... uh of you know good times had with young nina and relationships he's built with people who work at the hotel he instead decides to get a job at the restaurant <laughs> so it's like he's he's kind of got like a i don't know he is fussy he knows a lot of decorum he the reason that's that, all i mean, like all he has now is his gentlemanly upbringing yeah and and it's and a couple of vending machines probably. well probably yeah um, the, the villain I talked about that waiter, uh, who becomes the manager is referred to as the Bishop because he's very stern and dour. Uh-huh. Uh, the count gets into conflict with him when the Bishop as a waiter reports that every wine in the wine cellar 
is just labeled red and white now. There's no it in keeping with the party's ideals. I mean, can I be completely honest with you? That is what wine might as well be labeled for me. That's Andrew. I'm not just for me, for me personally. Okay, that might as be well be what wine is. I will because if it if it costs more than twenty two dollars, then you're not paying for anything. That's what I. That's what I think. I will just say there Mm -hmm. are some whites that are inferior to other white wines. There are there are some that are too sweet. Mm-hmm. There are some too sweet. They're they're not refreshing sure. to me. Sure. I don't need a Gewurzemeiner out here is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Give me that soft block. Mm-hmm. Get Pinot Grige? Yeah, I drink a Pinot Grige. Drink a mm-hmm. Chardonnay. That'd be fine. Sure, 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 sure. Um, Riesling is pushing it. Boy, this is almost as good as the oat milk talk that we yeah, had. Yeah, I know, right? That's kind of why I wanted to hit you back for that. Um, but so... The count gets very up in arms about this. Uh, also, the red and white thing is is clearly a reference to the you know revolutions that have happened in Russia and sure. the choosing between you know the common people and the aristocracy and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And later in the book, when the bishop has become the manager of the hotel, he is also like a loyal party member, and so the people who are keeping tabs on the count because he obviously is supposed to stay there under house arrest. Um, they are in you know leagues with the bishop at, at mm-hmm. times. Um, what else? I'd like, I don't know, this book is appealing because it doesn't have a like quest or MacGuffin. It might also cause people to bounce off it because it doesn't have one of those. Yeah, so I wanted to, to bring up another quote that I... Uh, because you you had said that it was like a slow burn or, or that it it took a while to get going for me yeah, yeah it was like wasn't as grabby early on and so he he addresses this in that interview that he that he did um he says uh one effective a book like this and by like this he means one that sort of isn't super plot driven in the early you know, goings. Yeah. A book like this can provide a lot of unexpected satisfactions to the reader. The problem is that the plethora of elements in the first half can bog readers down, making them so frustrated or bored that they abandon the book. So my challenge was to craft the story, the point of view and the language in such a way that readers enjoy the first half and feel compelled to continue despite their uncertainty of where things are headed, whether or not I succeeded in doing so is up to you. Whoa, reader beware. You choose the scare. Yeah. You choose the scare. So Craig, it's up to you. Did he succeed? <laughs> yeah, I think he did. You know, like, the cow is charming. It's a little, like, arch at times in terms of, like, he's always, like, there are times early in the book where he's in his weird little bedroom and there's, like, a one-eyed cat that lives in the hotel and he's, like, talking to the cat kind of cheekily <laughs> as he's, like, dealing with some, his situation. Some, some Sabrina Teenage Witch little, little you know, here. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a little, like, uh, I don't know what energy i'm trying to convey with how i'm like kind of shaking back and forth i don't know he's mm-hmm. like a little like david tendenty he's a little you know he's just got he's foppish um he's not rakish uh no no though we he, talked about rakes was last week yeah rakes was last week though he does uh strike up a kind of long-standing uh, friends with benefits situation with an actress named uh, Anna Urbanova. Ooh, is she also trapped in the hotel? No, but she does. Mm. No one else is trapped there. 
Nina, when she's a little girl, is kind of trapped there, though she kind of comes and goes over the years. And then after this, the book clicked for me when it's somewhere in the 1930s. I think it's 1938. Uh, Nina reappears. She's married someone, um, and that, and her husband is now like has been taken off to uh, like a work camp or something. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but mm-hmm. um, she and she has gotten involved in the party and the, some of the a lot of the historical uh, events are obviously occurring outside the hotel. So you get them through these characters that kind of flit in and out of the count's life. Like she is working with the the effort to collectivize farms to enact Stalin's like first five year plan. And then the book gives you like a footnote about like how that how many people uh, suffered in that process, even mm-hmm. as it was part of industrializing Russia. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so Nina shows up and she's like, hey, I got to go try and be near my husband in this bad situation. Count, you're the only person I trust. I'm going to leave my daughter with you here in this hotel. Mm hmm. And his relationship with Sophia takes over the rest of the book. And that for me is like where the book is like, oh, this is the book I'm reading. Like she's very charming. Sophia is um, when the count bonds with Nina as a little girl. She he tells her like stories about princesses and stuff. He tries to work that same trick with Sophia. He's like, would you like to hear a story about a princess? And she says she's like five or six. She says the age of the nobility has given way to the age of the common man. It was Ooh. historically inevitable. And he goes, yeah, so I've been told. I guess I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might have heard a thing or two about that. Yeah, huh. Weird. Just like the reason why I'm trapped in this hotel. As you describe the book to me and now that you've debunked the magical realism hotel. Sure concept from my from my brain and i've had some time to to, to think about it. it yeah sure <laughs> the the terminal comparison is pretty apt because he would you would have interesting sort of illuminating encounters with people who are just passing through but then you would build more lasting relationships and uh adversities i guess with the people who worked in the hotel who were also in a sense trapped there with you yeah so you know he has like permanent people versus temporary people he has his two good friends who help run the restaurant so like after as i said he was going to take his life he doesn't he gets a job at the restaurant he is like their head seater um in terms of like he's a waiter he's a good waiter but his main job is to like seat people in the right spots, make sure that, you know, dinners are, are well organized in advance and things like yeah, that. Yeah, waiter, waiter stuff. Well, and, and it's it's a way for him to use his gentleman skills in the new world. Um, and from what I was reading, the Metropole, uh, and this is referenced in the book, like when the Bolsheviks took power and they needed to like write up all the documents to form their government, like... Moscow was not did not have a lot of buildings in which they could work, so they did mm-hmm. occupy a whole floor of this hotel to like write up a constitution at one point, and that that's referenced in the book, which is kind of neat. Um, but he is like adjusting to the times, figuring out his stuff, and yeah, he becomes good friends with the maitre d and the chef. They're referred to as like the triumvirate. They have meetings every day. <laughs> There's a really charming passage <laughs> where he has spent a bunch of time like. Because Russia's, you know, on hard times um, and, you know, things are scarce, they are, like, scavenging for really uh, 
flavorful ingredients. There's like the night of the booyah base is like a scene where they concoct this lovely soup or stew or whatever it is and Mm -hmm. they're good friends and like that's their plot in the book is that they're good friends (laughs) like it's very lovely um it is not high drama and that that the high drama is mostly off screen uh Mm -hmm. as twere but the first third or or 40 percent of the book kind of pays off when all of a sudden he is now caring for Sophia and he has to fit her into his life. He has to figure out how his like his new routine at the hotel is going to accommodate this young girl and then young woman um, who he is going to become a surrogate father for. Um, there's other whole character, Andrew, that is this guy named Osip who starts having monthly dinners with the Count Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, I work for the government and we're going to need to start having relations with we're going to start having foreign relations <laughs> well, with <laughs> we're going to start we're going to start we are going to start communicating with, with we're going to open the yeah we're going to yeah establish diplomatic ties with like the word relations doesn't have to be involved yeah. even a little bit if yeah. you don't and want this it is to. some of this is pre-World War II. Um mm. Because it kind of it skirts around World War II mostly, but mm-hmm. um, this guy's like, "Hey, you, Mister Nobleman, you have studied a bunch of languages from Europe. You have studied these cultures. You spent time in Paris. I'm going to have monthly meetings with you where you're just going to kind of like teach me about these other cultures, um, and you're we're going to read French stuff, and then we're going to read British stuff, and then." Oh, we need to study America. We're going to watch movies together now because we have mm-hmm. movies. Um, and like that part's kind of neat. Like it scratches. I don't know. It's it's a lower stakes version of some of the stuff that I liked about the Americans where okay. you're like putting yourself in the head of someone who is just trying to learn about another culture, but like with a specific purpose as opposed to. And, and but they're they're meeting with someone who's just kind of interested in those cultures anyway, or they're mm-hmm. living them, mm-hmm. um, and that's where a lot of like the Casablanca stuff comes from. That's where ultimately, after uh, hundreds of pages of what feels like a kind of critique of Bolshevik Russia and Stalin, <laughs> um, and you know that era of of Russian government, comes a decent critique of the American government as well where Osip launches into this like attack on movies as like an opiate and kind of the values of cowboy films and rugged individualism um, kind of distracting people during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I see what you're doing, Amor. This yeah. is what I mean. When th- like, this is when he is like, the novel isn't saying one thing. It is presenting some ideas. But I mean, I think if you... He's saying things. He, I, he just doesn't but, want you to know. <laughs> I get like I, I guess I just like you could you could pretty easily take those like he has critiques of the Russian system and of the American system. Like you you can you can find the through line there yeah. if you want to say that your book is about something. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, he just wants he is interested in having his book being wants it to speak for itself perceived as agenda free i guess yeah i think so and it's it's also i did find it like 
I don't remember where in our comments someone referred to parts of this book as like czarist apologia. <laughs> and I uh-huh. like couldn't shake that as I was reading it because there is a sense of like the count dealing with the like days gone by feeling, um, especially as he's dealing with people like the bishop. He get the fact that he becomes such good friends with the people who were from another class who help run this hotel, like mm-hmm. that is a more being kind of idealistic i think about how these interactions would go um that he like befriends and becomes very close to the workers of this hotel and stuff like that yeah um, but i mean the flip side is that he does that because he's literally physically trapped well, in the yeah. hotel and he has no choice well, but to do that but and but like he has no choice so good that he did rather than i mean yeah i mean i guess it's good that he can when Forced to under duress, but I don't know. The book actually has a good (laughs) term for this. The Confederacy of the Humbled is what the Count calls it. Okay. Um, When one experiences a profound setback in the course of an enviable life, one has a variety of options. Spurred by shame, one may attempt to hide all evidence of the change in one's circumstances. (laughs) Thus, the merchant who gambles away his savings will hold on to his finer suits until they fray. Uh, and tell anecdotes from the halls of the private clubs where his membership has long since lapsed. In a state of self-pity, one may retreat from the world in which one has been blessed to live. Thus, the long-suffering husband, finally disgraced by his wife in society, may be the one who leaves his home in exchange for a small, dark apartment on the other side of town. Or like the Count and Anna Urbanova, one may simply join the Confederacy of the Humbled. Like the Freemasons, the Confederacy of the Humbled is a close-knit brotherhood whose members travel with no outward markings, but who know each other at a glance. For having suddenly fallen from grace, those in Confederacy share a certain perspective, which is like, they know where they came from. They are not, they recognize they have no power to get back there. And they are like, kind of just along for the ride. And they can recognize that in other people. And Mm -hmm. that... it's like this interesting version of individualism at the heart of this book, which is very skeptical of both collectivism and individualism at the same time. I don't know what mm-hmm. the third way is in that like spectrum, <laughs> but <laughs> it's yeah, it's interesting. Um, I haven't talked, you know, the Sophia Count relationship anchors the back half of the book. Um, at one point, she is injured during one of their games where she races through the hotel using all the secret doors, and mm-hmm. he has to take her to a hospital. And it is this... that Like is a like, real hospital or like a stuck in the hotel hospital? No, he, he like leaves the hospital even though he's not supposed to... He leaves the hotel. The hotel, excuse me. Yes. Um, even though he's not supposed to and like gets himself to a hospital... Who's in, who's in, have you mentioned who's enforcing this? I, I don't mean to interrupt your no, thing. No, no, no. Like, does he have to convince somebody? Does he sneak past them? Is it there like is an not, honor oh, system thing? It, it is, he is being like kind of loosely surveilled through mechanisms. There's not like a gunman outside the hotel, but were anyone to like, when Sophia shows up in the hotel, um, Anna Urbanova, who has kind of made her career in film and reinvented herself a few times in some impressive ways, uh, mm-hmm. in some ways that has actually gotten her some allies in uh, the government, kind of 
puts a little story out there that maybe Sophia is her illegitimate child with a member of Politburo, and we'd rather not embarrass mm, that guy because fun. otherwise that would attract more attention to the count. Um, yeah. People are aware of the count, but no, yeah, no one's outside like with a gun waiting for him to leave. Okay. But especially once like the bishop is running the hotel, you get the sense that like they know everything. They know any big things that he's doing. Um, yeah, well, and and the flip side of like, oh, he became friends with the common man is that maybe some of the common men don't want to be friends with you and they want to rub your face in the ground. Could be an for issue. all the yeah. Could be an so issue. He, anyway, he gets to the he goes to the hospital. Yeah, is there and, more and to more to that. Ju- just that everyone in this book is a good person except for I guess Khrushchev and the bishop. <laughs> like we we do briefly see Khrushchev. He uh is very excited about a nuclear power plant and he is very excited to be antagonistic to the west mm-hmm. um that's all we get everyone else in this book aside from the bishop is super cool because mm-hmm. you go to the hospital and all of a sudden the payoff for this relationship with osip and all the the tutoring is that osip shows up and is like yo go out the back door there's a van get in the van and you can get back to the hotel safely. Mm-hmm. It's stuff like stuff like everybody's l- like looking out for him because he treats people well, and he you know. Sure. Um, I did. I do want to shout out like if you like this book because you like the the kind of inclusive gentleman energy that he has. Uh, there's a moment where when he first meets Osip, and Osip's like, "You don't think I'm a gentleman, do you?" And he's like, "No, because you cut all your food before you gave me any. Like that's one thing." Uh, and Osip's like, "Well, also, I served this like wine from my hometown. That's clearly worthless." And he's like, "No, actually, serving something from where you're from is a very generous and interesting thing to do. I think I like. Like he's just got this like, I don't know. You can't. You can never quite pin him down. The count." That is mm-hmm. in, in a way that makes him eminently likable. Mm-hmm. Um, the last section of the book, uh, and then I want to talk about one character I haven't mentioned at all. Okay, um, Sophia becomes this like very talented piano player, and um, she is you know being recruited by different entities in Russia. Uh, to perform, some of which may take her away from the count, some may not. Uh, ultimately, she's going to travel to France, and there's this like whole scheme that the count comes up with that she will be at, with the help of some American named Richard who once came by the hotel a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sounds like a totally real and not made up guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Richard Vanderweil, his name is. Uh, he is going to help. Sophia kind of escape and then he is also going to after the count helps him by spying on Khrushchev in this cool scene that happens um, he helps the count escape from the hotel as well and the the end of the book is like the count kind of enjoying some freedom and it's it's not directly stated that he and Sophia are going to reunite but it's pretty clear that they can and will at some point um, because why wouldn't they? They love each other. They're father and daughter. It's super cool. You love both of them. You want them to hang out and be nice. Um, and the book does nothing to tell you that that won't happen. 
Mm-hmm. Like all of the unfortunate things happen to characters who don't make it to the end of the book, which I guess is what it means when an unfortunate thing happens to a character. I shouldn't put it that way. That's just how books work. Um, mm-hmm. This guy Mishka is a friend of his from when he was a kid and he's a poet and an artist and at one point he's working for some book publisher they ask him to censor or otherwise excise some lines from a a collection of Chekhov's letters where Chekhov talks about how good the bread is in other parts of Europe <laughs> and it is very clear that it is this kind of low stakes but high stakes censorship of tacit approval of places outside of Russia. Mm -hmm. And it kind of really weighs on Mishka and his, his story and Nina's story in as much as we get them, uh, are where the like hardest parts of this era for people are, um, where people suffer the most or their lives are changed the most by this regime and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get this, ultimately you get a, a, an explanation of kind of how selfless the count is relative to Mishka. That is, that is very moving. Um, I don't know. I made a list of why people might like this book. <laughs> uh, they might like historical fiction, right? They might like the life in a hotel premise. Especially if they're fans of the terminal. Especially. As we've discussed, yeah. Um, they might like the kind of love letter to arts and culture. There's a lot of, I, you know, there's a lot of, as I said, Casablanca stuff. There's a lot of Chekhov stuff. There's just, in general, I think that can, you can read some of it as a little reactionary, but at it, some of it is just kind of like the power of stuff to move you, which I don't begrudge anybody enjoying mm-hmm. um as i said the characters are all mostly friends except for that one guy except for the bishop uh and, Kru- and khrushchev the bishop gets his his comeuppance in the book khrushchev does not um <laughs> i mean he gets i guess history gets it's well his we're all in dialogue with history yeah huh funny how that works <laughs> uh-huh. um and then it it feels like a heartwarming oscar movie Mm-hmm. Um, in the kind of the lack of the of the quest inherent to the to the plot, there's memorable characters who are only in a few scenes, uh, and there's lots of little nuggets about like life, and you know, like there's one little thing about you know we shouldn't we shouldn't just consider uh, people; we should be willing to reconsider people. Like there's a lot of like little mm-hmm. little like pillow embroidery. <laughs> Yeah, and like the count, the the count delivers them in a way that doesn't make them feel feel pillow embroidery. They're usually okay. born out of a nice little scene, sure. um, but they do feel a little like, yeah, like a little bit of a a little poem. I mean, does he ever thing. does he ever say live laugh love? He never he says ever... live laugh love. He sh- he should have said it. He could have if he, I think if the book went like, on long enough, like any. Like sort of historical Oscar bait movie, like it's it's so important for those movies to be like, this is history and all these problems are fixed now. Does this does the book have that? It does not have that that no. vibe to it. Okay, no, yeah, the, like the, this this history is in the past, and it, it, this this one 
it's fixed probably by white people and it's never going to repeat itself. Thank you very much. No, the the fact that the, the two characters that we come to love the most just literally have to run away into hiding rather than like changing the world. Like the book feels pretty low stakes from a historical fiction perspective. Like he, he does one little spy maneuver, but it's not even about a war thing. It's not, we don't get to know what that caused later or anything like that. It's really just about how can these two characters continue to, to be in relationship to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like you under my list of reasons why people might bounce off this book, it feels like a heartwarming Oscar movie. There's no <laughs> MacGuffin. There's characters who are only in like one or two scenes sometimes and they're memorable, but you don't get more of them. There's lots of these little like embroidery nuggets about meaning. Like I, the book is very much uh, its thing. And sure. I found it compelling. I found it increasingly compelling over the course of my read. Um, even when in like, it's really only the last fifth of the book that has like a, a plot in in that we the count is doing a thing that's going to have a payoff. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is like we're moving through time. He's building relationships with people. Re- those relationships change. They deepen. They grow you know, individual vignettes occur. uh, (laughs) And ultimately you get a lot of neat little characters that like it was neat to meet them and, and spend time with them. Uh, But we got to get that going as like when we meet somebody, like if we start doing a live show again, like we can start telling people, Oh, need to meet you. Need to meet you. Huh? Hmm. It was neat to meet you for the first time, Andrew. It was neat. Thanks. I feel like I make uniquely bad first impressions <laughs> because I don't know how to talk to people I've never talked to before. Mm. But uh, but uh, maybe maybe I'm just like maybe we're just bringing feelings from a, a, a child's birthday party that we went to recently. Oh no, the podcast, and I just need to leave them. <laughs> I need to leave them in the park. Let me ask you a distracting question so you can leave those feelings in the park. Wonderful. And then we'll, and then we'll we close can, out. We can wrap it up. Yep. What is the... It doesn't have to be the fanciest hotel. What is the most memorable or most... Just like what's a distinct hotel memory that you have of a place? I mean, one year when I was covering a new iPhone, <laughs> and I think it was the first iPhone announcement I ever covered, which would have been the iPhone 5S back in 2013. Okay. Um, I went to California to like to San Jose, I think, to to uh go to the event and and you know stand in line and write all the stuff. And I was still in this mode where like I, I I need to spend the the company's money like I would spend my own money. So oh. I end up in a like a a motel six off a highway that, I mean, it had been years, I think since indoor cigarette smoking oh, no. was banned in establishments like this. And I don't think you could have burned the place to the ground and the ashes would still smell like cigarette smoke. <laughs> like, I don't think there was anything that anybody could do to get the cigarette stink out of this hotel. 
Uh, but I had a pool, so... That's your most memorable that was, hotel? That was something. It's just like you asked me, and that was the first one I thought about. Because I've, I've oh. spent a lot of time in... I mean, love the country in its suites that we oh, stay at no. when we go to my folks' house. Um, but but the cigarette uh, Motel 6 that I went to for the iPhone 5S announcement was the first one that I thought of. Well, I was going to like talk about the it's not even a hotel but the really nice airbnb that we stayed in amsterdam that had this nice juliet balcony that you could like it was it was a side street and you could i, look I, out mean, I don't there. think we can count airbnbs you're just staying in someone's house okay fair enough i would for I, money <laughs> i did enjoy a hotel i enjoyed was when i stayed on in an embassy row in dc for a friend's wedding that was lovely but your story made me think of the weird kind of motel 60 place i stayed on a show tour that when we checked in at one in the morning there was a guy in the window and you couldn't go inside to talk to him you had to check in and he had a sign in the window that just said night window it's like okay (laughs) and then the next morning one of the actors on the tour couldn't find their phone and i was tasked with going into the office to say hey did anybody find a phone and somebody just pulled it out of their breast pocket i said oh is Mm -hmm. it this one Mm mm-hmm but they were just keeping the phone. Mm-hmm. There was nothing about that person's shirt that that read, this is the lost and found. That person I just was having a phone. Gave it back, though, didn't he? Yeah, they didn't seem happy about it. Yeah, well. Anyway, I liked this book. I had a good time with it. Good. Um, I uh, Yeah, that's all I got. Sophia is a cool character, and the count uh, grows on you. Sure. Like a fine fungus. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your favorite hotel. Send us an email at overdupod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at overdupod. Thanks to Tate, Caroline, Levita, Gina, Natalie, Sarah, Mike, Book Pals, Phoenix BC, and many more. Just want to make sure I got them right. I was slowing down. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Nick Larandis, who composed our theme music. Andrew, thanks for letting me tell you about this book. If they, you're welcome. They, the listeners, want to know more about the show, where do they go? All right, Oatmeal Crew, you can go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have book links to the books that we have read and the ones that we're going to read. You can click them. It takes you to bookshop.org. You get a book. Your local independent bookseller gets a cut. And we also get a small cut. And everybody gets a cut. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't have our June schedule up yet. That will happen soon. I believe we have our first, uh, goosebumps combo episode for welcome to dead house and stay out of the basement hitting the main feed later this week. So keep no, it's on the main that. feed now. Go back oh, and listen to it now. Whoa. Go. That's what we get for recording episodes ahead of time. Yeah. Go listen to it. If you didn't already doofus is up there. Yeah. Doofus. You're, I'm not stupid. You're stupid. <laughs> Uh, patreon.com slash overdue pod is where you can support the show financially get access early access to goosebumps and other bonus episodes and all kinds of other fun rewards go check it out uh yeah like i said don't know what i'm gonna read next week we'll put it up on our twitter and elsewhere yeah but uh yeah we're gonna we're gonna barrel ahead into june and it's gonna be great probably cool i i'm thankful i'm not trapped in a hotel right now yeah yeah me too i guess okay everybody thank you for listening to our podcast and until we hit you next time try to be happy
That was a HeadGum Podcast.